Welcome to Josh's Worst Nightmare Oddcast. I'm your host, Josh Schlossberg, author of Charwood and Moline, surveying the dark landscape of biological horror fiction. This episode, we're being re-haunted by Daniel Brom. I think one of our only, if possibly the only, repeat guests. So, yay. Daniel Brom's novella, The Serpent's Shadow, is out now for the first time in print from Cemetery Dance Publications. Brahm is the author of the short story collections The Night Marchers and Other Strange Tales, The Wish Mechanics, Stories of the Strange and Fantastic, Underworld Dreams, and the chapbook Yeti Tiger Dragon. His fiction has appeared in a range of publications. His most recent story is A Loch Ness Monster Under the Sign of the Southern Cross in the anthology A Darkness Visible. His stories are full of settings that span the globe and explore the tension between the psychological and the supernatural. He is the host of the New York Ghost Story Festival and the Nighttime Logic Reading Series. Find him on his YouTube channel, Daniel Brom, and on social media. Welcome to my nightmare again, Daniel. Happy, thanks. Happy to be back. Happy to be haunting and to be the return ghost on your show. Thanks a lot, Josh. Be the haunter, not the haunted. Definitely. <laughs> well, uh, on Josh's Worst Nightmare, I invite on horror authors to talk about an aspect of biological horror, more or less, which I define as living creatures, vital processes relevant to their writing. This episode, we're talking about sacred and profane, the relation of the natural world to horror and weird fiction. So let's just start with what is sacred and what is profane to you, Daniel? What do those mean? Um, Not to be cheeky, but absolutely nothing. <laughs> I think I just wanted to come, I, I wanted to come up with a catchy, uh, a catchy title for, um, for, for your show. I think the focus is more on, uh, I meant it to, to illustrate the second half of that title heading, which was the relationship of the natural world between horror and real fiction. What I might have been thinking of was um, I'd like to review with you or, or discuss all, all different approaches horror writers and weird fiction authors take. And maybe what I was thinking was in, in my novella, The Serpent Shadow, there is a ritualistic or perhaps even religious aspect to it going on but not going to fake it and say that i really have something in mind for that. <laughs> understandable so not a religious component but that's certainly where a lot of people will go when they hear sacred and profane right isn't that probably a lot of what would be on people's minds yeah 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 and i'm wondering when it was on my mind, but yeah, um, yeah, that's a, but yeah, the, the religious, at least in the organized religion, or or even even in pagan religion, it is as far it's as far from my mind as possible. When at least in the this week, in thinking about and just kind of preparing uh, to talk to you about it, yeah, as far from my mind as can be those religious aspects. We can we can cut that out if it, I didn't mean to. No, Cut no. short your question. It's a great question, but uh, no, um, no, no, that's fair. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. Would you say that a lot of people would attribute so sacred, good, profane, bad? So that kind of binary that people view the world. 
I bet you that's not what you're you're all about. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. I think I, I, I mean, honestly, I just really liked, I liked, um, I liked those words. I may, I may have been thinking about um, the important, you, yeah, to to use them, perhaps, yeah, to to, perhaps to use them in terms of like the the importance and the um, respect and desecration of the natural world, which is something which seems to be a sort of, of a vanilla or a basic thing in horror. But um, yeah, I was thinking thinking in more uh, in terms of the un, the un-understandable, uh, the relationship of the natural world to the supernatural in terms of how so, so, many, so much in this world that may appear as supernatural or maybe something that we humans label as supernatural in my opinion and i think what i see in a lot of weird fiction supernatural fiction is perhaps a function of the natural world or of humans or of animals or of um, flora and fauna that we just don't comprehend we don't have language for we don't have words for and we don't have science for it. a great example of that would be perhaps one of the oldest weird fictions or uh, certainly an old weird fiction story in the lineage um um the willows blackwoods mm-hmm. blackwoods the willows was mm-hmm. was an example of that it, it, <laughs> it's neither a navy of the sacred it's great that we kind of landed on sacred and profane because i think blackwood's approach and people who take that approach it's neither sacred nor profane <laughs> it mm-hmm. kind of it kind of is it both both in terms of, of philo- philosophical looking at it and also in terms of story structure which fascinates me too taking the first part the supernatural element that's going on in blackwoods and willows it's neither good nor evil it's it's it, 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 it's something there and uh in terms of structure our narrator it's not something that has to be vanquished or defeated and in terms of story structure, the plot is really travelogue and observational, observational. So even though it's a very old story, it's it's great. It's a great landmark story in that it um, it's very very different in terms of fiction and and sort of stands as a good reference point. That's great. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, somebody who spends a lot of time in nature, yeah, I think a lot of people do and have attributed certain characteristics to natural landscape. Of course, if you think about early colonial United States in say New England, the forests were home to devils, right? That's where the quote savages live. That's where monsters live, all sorts of negative aspects to it, which uh, it's pretty unfair right there. Yeah. Or even giving the fear of the unknown or they're tagging their religious binary system onto it. Right. I mean, it's understandable. We are humans, and the human mind maybe wants to understand, tries to understand. Um, yeah, as someone who spends a fair amount of time in nature as well, there are certain things that I observe or I've observed, and if I didn't see with my own eyes, if you would try to tell me that, I would either be like, right, the same thing would happen to me. I would either not believe it, or I'd be like, wow, you saw the very least you saw something unexplainable 
And it's easy to see in some cases where a lot of these myths or legends um, come from. <laughs> you know, uh, will-o'-the-wisps, you know, or like you know, there, there are, hmm. uh, you know, species of, you know, bioluminescence that we've never seen that before and never even thought about it. What are the strange lights in the forests leading the people astray, you know? And uh, on a different continent, I think it was even, well, it's not the 19... 19- hundreds anymore but i think you know mountain gorillas were not were were hmm. not a fact until they were quote unquote discovered um you know until i believe in the around the turn, the turn of the last century so a lot of the things that are are simply signs that it, it's primates these are real animals were hmm. were the things of magic and legends and monsters so uh, that aspect fascinates me both in terms of the real world and the way all the different ways authors like to put it in fiction. Sure. Yeah. I love that. So can you give any examples of things in nature that you may have experienced in the sacred and profane and, or included in your writing? Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not so sure um, how much of the real world stuff intentionally sure. um, found its way into my writing. Uh, just just a real world um, uh, real world example this summer for the first time this summer I saw uh, unintentionally came across um, forgetting the word for them but I mentioned the will of the list but they were uh, I think they're called synchronous synchronating fireflies you know I grew up on the he think you're a west coaster or a color, uh, on the east coast we have fireflies or lightning bugs bioluminescent summer bugs um and um, for whatever reason, I came across a different species of them. They were a different color, a different encounter, and they just behaved so differently. And I'd never, if I hadn't looked it up and didn't see it, what I was seeing was so visually different than anything I'd ever seen before on this earth that if I hadn't been prepared for it, or if I didn't um, didn't know about it or read read about the science of it, I really would have thought I was you know, in the presence of something magical or, or unknown. Um, so, you know, just to, uh, but I'm a, I'm a believer, you know, I'm a believer in, you know, that we're only on the, the cutting edge of science that um, there's so much in the natural world that we're, take any modicum of time looking back, we can have it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. In, in my writing, um I took in, we mentioned the serpent shadow. I took one of the, the speculative element or one of the speculative elements um, in the serpent shadow is, is an element of Mayan lore, uh, the, the Quetzalcoatl. And um, yeah, there's uh, an explanation. I won't give it away in the book, but there's an explanation in the book. Um, not Maybe not necessarily what it is, but different parties, different characters, different factions in the book have their own ideas of what this is mm-hmm. and have their own ideas on how they think or they might think to try to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think that's where maybe going back to the sacred and profane came mm-hmm. along like to one side of may have been sacred and to maybe people on the other side of that, it could, could have been profane or a desecration uh, to answer delayed reaction answer to your first question. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. That's really awesome. And uh, yeah, that that collection sounds pretty cool. 
you write a lot about oceans and we've talked about that before. And I'm thinking of one of the stories. I don't remember which collection it was in. I, I think it was not your most recent one, which I certainly not the serpent one, but the one before, yeah. it, which I think was, I think that one Underworld. was re reprint though, but yeah. I think it was Underworld Dreams. We, we were talking when I last appeared on the show. That there was a sense. lot of oceans on there. I'm glad you mentioned oceans because um, yeah. look, we, we mentioned Blackwood and the Willows. That was one attempt. Right. Um, in preparing to talk about different, uh, I'm sorry, one that uh, attempt, one uh, method that weird fiction authors use. Another author who a lot of uh, is often thought of and is science fiction is James Tiptree Jr., mm. pen name for Al Shelby. And they mostly wrote award winning um, classic SF, but they have a, a book. I guess I can hold it up. Uh, I don't know where the camera is. Uh, um, it's called Tales of Quintana Roo. It's from art. It's actually a three story little book uh, that came out from Arkham House, reprinting three uncollected tip tree stories that take place in the same area as the <laughs> Serpent Shadow, um, the Quintana Roo, the Yucatan. And Tip Tree has a very different approach to um, to the unknowable, to the weird in these books, and they all they they do revolve around the ocean. One of them, uh, one of the stories is called. I think all of them are ocean stories. One is called um, "The Boy Who Water Skied to Forever," which is not a funny story, despite the kind of comical name. And the other one is called What Came Ashore at Leros. And the other, I believe, is called Beyond the Dead Reef. And uh, yeah, to anyone interested in ecological fiction or biological fiction or just weird fiction or just fantastically written fiction, track down this out-of-print book. It's um, three really different approaches to, mm -hmm. uh, to the weird in the natural world. That's cool. And they're not human centric. You know, it's different. It's different than um, what I was doing in the Serpent Shadow. Maybe a little bit in the Serpent Shadow. Uh, we asked the question: Okay, yeah, you think you're using this ritual to summon Quetzalcoatl? Yeah, you think uh, you're fighting for Mexico to go this way? You're fighting for Mexico to go that way? But what about the thing? You know, how does this thing or this entity or whatever like? What does maybe what does it want? Is it capable of thought? And um, yeah, and uh, and are those thoughts even? Uh, I think I think another another um, it's a great philosophical aspect, and perhaps it's more common in weird fiction is the uh, the notion of the natural world, or you know, often it's the the old, you know world-crushing horror that is um it's simply unknowing or uncaring of of the human you know which so it's a different it's a different it's not it's not an evil perhaps it's evil in the way a hurricane is evil hurricane isn't out to get you you know a hurricane exists you know a hurricane is just existing like yeah don't don't go standing in it don't go standing in an earthquake but if we're writing stories about hurricanes and and earthquakes it's not like you know, it's out to get us. And um, yeah, I think that is, that's a more common, a more common uh, thing that we find in weird fiction is, yeah, like the natural world or the phenomenon so great that human, human um, 
human life can't even be measured against it. Um, that's like that sort of the epic scale. I'm more interested in um, the micro scale, like, you know, like perhaps, and that's what I think what Tiptree does in, in the story Beyond the Dead Reef. It's like this, uh, I'm not even sure if it's a human encounter, but, you know, like it's not, there's some non-human centric encounters or I'm, I'm also really interested in encounters where the stakes that are in play are the stakes of a human, of a human life. Like, what is it, what does it mean? What does it mean for this person to have just encountered this small thing where it's not like um, the fate of the world is going on. So it's a bit of a ramble about some different things, but some things to show on. Oh, excellent. That is totally on point. Yeah. I think you're right. Earthquakes, hurricanes, hurricanes, they're not malevolent, right? We ascribe something to that as humans, but it's not there. I've experienced a lot of things where I'll hike around and it's a very beautiful, welcoming landscape. And then something might happen. Like, I don't know, all of a sudden the weather turns or I get lost a little bit and all of a sudden everything does feel very negative, but nothing's actually changed out there. Nature has always been equally as indifferent to me. Or, or one can say even hospitable in terms of it is providing life, right? Like here's water, the deer seem to be fine, the birds seem to love it. So it's definitely not out to get us, but I think as humans, we're, we are separate from nature at this point where we can't even really survive out there. And I only go out there with all sorts of fancy gear. So even I'm not experiencing it, just me and nature. But I felt sometimes that sacred and profane, and I could see you know, if I lived 100 years ago or if I was particularly religious, attributing certain aspects to the landscape, which probably aren't there, although I do believe in elves. Uh, so. uh, well, I, I'm not so sure I believe in elves or perhaps on the face value. With the exception of the elves, despite that I love Tolkien, I'm really glad what you said right there, because... Um, even though we're, we're kind of echoing each other, like, yeah, okay, earthquakes and that stuff aren't malevolent. But I'm glad that you said the landscape sometimes felt hostile or the landscape sometimes felt welcoming. And you know what? I believe in that. And I believe that there can be a biological explanation for that. Um, some I've heard people um, when I'm out in the wild or I'm out with a guy and I'll ask people who have really, really gone out there, really gone into primary areas, like, to, like tell me your scariest story. Tell me a ghost story. And they don't, they don't back down. Very recently, someone told me, um, you know, uh, a ghost story or a supernatural encounter. And I found it more credible because it wasn't like, I always like, I always like to follow the money or follow who has to gain from telling the story. But this person told me a story about, it's like, listen, man, I know what it feels like to have a bear watch me. I know what it feels like to have this. It's like, I went out in this area and it probably was an area where humans had not been before. And he felt... He didn't use the word malevolence, but he felt like a get out hmm. vibe. And of course, yeah, the, the easiest answer is it was his own human interpretation of being fear of the unknown. But now we're in the days where mitochondrial networks and we know that trees and fungus have communication that is beyond human um, or just on the tip of human understanding. Who's to say that it's not part of the natural world of communicating? Like white-tailed deer, they there's danger around.
like we froze up there. Hmm. Edit here, write that down. Can you hear me, Dan? Nope. I don't know what happened there. Just, Sorry. It was a little bit, but I think we're back. So Good. I was saying, uh, who's to say that um, what Josh mentioned as saying, I felt a vibe, I felt a hostile vibe, I felt a welcoming vibe, mm -hmm. can't actually be us humans picking up on some sort of biological process that we're not aware of, we might never be aware of, or we might only be aware of in our future, right? In our future, we might be able to say, oh, wow, if we actually step on a mitochondrial network, it triggers this sort of a wave or this sort of a natural impulse, and it touches this part of our brain. And until we're able to um, process that in human ways, it may come across as just being like, wow, I feel welcome. I feel euphoric. I feel afraid or... I feel malevolent and um, mm -hmm. I don't know that it, 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 it maybe it's just a storyteller sense, but it makes a sort of sense to me. Well, yeah, it is thought that trees do communicate to one another. There's no reason why that communication can't be outside of the tree network, whether it's directed to us on purpose, maybe the trees are not psyched that we're there Maybe sometimes they just don't care. I have a hard time believing they're ever going to want us there <laughs> if they know anything about humans. But maybe maybe sometimes they're cool with that. So yeah, I don't think that's too out of the ordinary and something that people might attribute to some psychic phenomenon would likely have some sort of scientific basis. Maybe there's some sort of pheromone or chemical being excreted. Any number of possibilities. It's funny because I was just talking to a guy I was walking out in the woods with him and he's actually a tree. I don't know what his job is. He he does cut trees on private property and sort of like a tree repair guy. Exactly. And he was telling me about how important all these networks are, of course. And that's why a lot of the logging that's going on around here, even when they're just quote thinning around some trees, he's saying that they're tearing out all of the connections and they grow in these clumps in these groups and we're actually making these individual islands and it's not something that is uh beneficial to sending nutrients much much less uh you know maybe they like hanging out with each other the trees i don't know <laughs> yeah um i like what you said that um we as humans like to ascribe like oh maybe they like having us here or they don't or it's probably a lot more along the lines of like not even comprehending us as us. It's simply like, you know, it's like, right. yeah, it's communication, like um, entity that cuts trees, proximity, or, you know, just um, right. Right. entity in proximity, you know, like, or, I don't know. Yeah. Awareness. Nature uh, yeah. has but I a think, uh, yeah, but I, yeah, I think, I think it's the point is though, is I think that it is, um, yeah, it's something, and it's something that's that's unknowable. And and, and it's, when it comes to we're telling stories as intentional storytellers, you, know, you 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 and I were just telling stories as nature enthusiasts. But then you know, like these are this these are the sort of the sort of uh, paths and grounds one takes further and further as storytellers, or perhaps storytellers, uh, you know, of the horrific or the uncanny. Yeah, no, exactly. And there have been You're a lot of stories around the needle right there. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. And there's been a ton of stories. Forests do seem to be the go-to. My guess is because we are descended from a common ape ancestor and we literally came from the forest and forest was home for us, but now 
Sometimes it can be sinister to people, but it feels like home to me again as a weirdo. So for weirdos, I think it's home <laughs> for normal people. Maybe not. I don't know, but it doesn't always come back to the forest. A lot of I times. wonder, I wonder, I mean, yeah, the forest does feel like home or I think, I, think, I can't imagine the natural world not feeling home mm -hmm. uh, to anyone, even to someone who is not a quote unquote weirdo or even someone who's been out of it their whole life, you know, maybe, um, but that's another topic for another day. Fair, maybe <laughs> may the case. Well, something I want to ask you about is how sacred and profane in nature may tie into the folk horror subgenre, which can be defined in lots of different ways. But one of the ways that for sure is it takes place in nature, folk horror, official folk horror, whatever. And there is typically some strange ritualistic happening that to tie it into this, the people who are doing that ritual tend to think of it as sacred, right? They're they're killing somebody to bring back, back the crops, but whoever the outsider is, and in a sense, the reader in the modern day is seeing these sacred behaviors as quite profane, right? You can't just kill people who come into your town and drip their blood on crops. And so what do you think about that? How it ties into folklore? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's, uh, I think it's, you hit it right on the head about, um, about folk horror. Yeah. Often. And often I think you hit like one, on one of the most common with good reason and probably one of the most effective uh, plot structures is, yeah, is, is the, the natural world or the element of the natural world as protector or adventure of the of the of the desecrated. Um right. And I think I think so much folk horror is either an iteration or a reversal or some sort of permutation of it. Um in the Serpent Shadow, there's a lot of folklore, not even the Quetzalcoatl. Mm -hmm. There's uh there is the Santa Muerte, which is the um uh patron um Saint Death in, in Mexico. And I alluded to a battle that's going on in that novella, and there are different factions. There's uh the native uh, the native um the native Mayan persons in the story and then there's the the Mexicans you know the political uh, designation of Mexicans in the story and they're fighting the story takes place in the 80s they're fighting over the direction of Mexico they're fighting over what is it going to be is it going to be expanded or is it going to be this natural world or not and in the middle of that comes the folklore you know are they are they how are they using ritual how are they using Quetzalcoatl? Uh, there's a murderer out there. The murderer is claiming to be Saint Death. You know, the murderer is claiming to uh, be fighting for one of these sides or the other. Um, I personally like it when tropes and what is the expected are inverted. But just taking it on that first position, yeah, folklore often is uh, the most common that we see is the the avenger or the protector of the natural world, and often it's a throwback to uh, to old ways. Again, those sort of tropes can be, look, they can be fun and taken out of face. They can also be um, misused. They can also be very tired in certain ways. They can also be used to, to, to you know, a lot of tired lenses that I find tiresome. Uh, but, um, but at their core, yeah, there's something, there's something visceral there, I think. Right. Yeah. It's definitely an element that that's sacred and profane. There's a binary to that, of course, right? So here's one side, here's the other. But I think what we've learned so much in life is that is just perception, right? That's just subjectivity. Something that could be seen as good can be bad. A lot of people's heroes 
are other people's villains. So what do you think about that thing? Obviously we have to make some distinctions in the world. So I'm not saying everything's I love, a gift, but <laughs> I think I think the difficult questions make for interesting conflicts and yeah. make the world and make the world go round. Um, I tried to capture that in, in the serpent shadow. Whereas mm. uh, uh, the same thing that in Tip, Tip Tree, in Tip Tree's work, the Quintana Roo, Tip Tree wrote about uh, a place what I saw as a child or as a teenager, what's now the Mayan Riviera, these fancy cities uh, that we, we can't, us working people can't even afford. I saw them being clear cut. You know, mm. I saw mm. I saw the bulldozers. I saw the smoke of this amazing natural wonder. And on the face value, you want to ascribe a binary to that. Like, how bad, how horrifying, destroying the natural world is bad, right? We want to ascribe that. And I can get down with that. But there's other vectors that come into play. The other thing that's bad that I saw as a kid was I saw poverty and suffering like I've never seen before, that I don't wish on any anyone. And when I came back, uh, I came back many times. The most recent time that I came back, that poverty and suffering suffering was ameliorated. And so like there's different there's different factors at play of saying like, well, um, maybe there's the loss of this that we ascribe as good or, or saying the loss of it is bad. Mm -hmm. But now if we put it on the vector of it might mean prosperity um, for traditional people in that area, well, who's to say maybe maybe we're just looking at the vectors all wrong or without taking it off right and wrong. We're just looking at the vectors and just like, you know, it's it's a lenticular or it's it's something else. Certainly for me, certainly mm -hmm. for me, it was an awareness of saying like, oh, chop down that tree is bad. But what, what about chopping down that tree um, so people can live, you know, have a chance of, you know, living in, in, in dignity and prosperity? That sort of stuff makes mm -hmm. for interesting factors in life and mm -hmm. interesting conflicts and stories. Yeah, and I think those are worth investigating. I'm on the board of a Nigerian environmental organization that is dealing with people in Nigeria, rural people who are very poor, and they oftentimes will do things like, uh, so they'll burn parts of the forest and they'll burn these trees to get the honey out of hives. But what happens is that's sort of like a one shot deal and then the hives are destroyed and then it's not so great for them. So. But instead of saying, oh, what you're doing is wrong and bad, it's like, well, they're, they're impoverished people. It's like they need food. What are they supposed to do? So this organization actually helps set them up with sustainable beekeeping so they don't have to do those certain things. And of course, it's a little different when, say, it's a multinational conglomerate that's coming in and taking the resources. That's you yeah, know, maybe, maybe that's easier to point fingers or whatever. But a lot of times that's not what's going on. And so there's no sacred or profane going, maybe the, the eventual impact on their own land base is, is profane, but it's a sacred effort to feed themselves and their families and, and persist in their natural world. So how do you do these things? It's a messy world. Messy indeed. <laughs> it's messy. But one of the other things I think of, so burn forest. So that's something I wrote about in, in Charwood. And I've spent a lot of time in burn forest. And we like to think, even people who love forests, oh, but it's bad when a forest has wildfire. And it's true, a lot of fires are started by humans, but forests, particularly Western forests, they literally require wildfire. So I've learned to 
see burned forest with a different eye. And I play with that in Charwood first, when she sees them, they're these burnt, sinister, creepy, awful, mm -hmm. spooky places. Then over time, oh, okay, this is a natural part of the process. Right. It's, it's actually recycling. And yeah. Part of part of the natural cycle, right? When when left alone without the human, right? You take the human equation out of it. This right. is part. It, we're ne we're nearing that part that humans don't understand. Like, oh, it dawns on humans that yeah, this this thing that we're labeling maybe uh, binary evil or good in one way is is again is again neither. You know, uh, uh, on a real micro level, again, I was out. Um, out and there were so many it was a time of year where there the, the turtles were, were were nesting and there were all these all these turtle nests and turtle nest and turtle nest and turtle nest <laughs> and so many of them had been um disturbed uh the, the mink or the skunk or the raccoon got them and my friend was quite um quite distressed by that and was mm -hmm. describing binariness to like you know a bad rating and, and i was like look Look, it's we're sad because you know we want the baby turtle and the cuteness, but this is a sign of abundance. Like it's you know it's it's a sign of abundance for these these other animals, and yeah, that's that's the way it goes. Maybe you know, nine hundred turtles hatch, and it's only supposed to be that one percent going on. So it's like right. you can, I think it's a really powerful shift, a really powerful way of looking at it, where it can be like you can think of what what is what you can take it as tragedy or evil. And be like, no, no, no! It's actually a sign that this is healthy, that this is that this is nature working, and don't fuck with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have not that much difficulty doing that in nature. I guess when you bring the human element to it, that's when I end up taking sides, and I usually take hmm. sides against humans. But of course, yeah. But that's and, a limited view as well. Same here, same here. And humans, they can't get anything right. You know, just look at <laughs> uh, look at our ecosystem. <clears throat> we're not i wanted to lay blame on australia of just you know putting it introducing rabbits or the cane toads or the snake or the this and then just their ecosystem is just so fucked but with the spotter at least on on our coast it's the spotter it's the summer of the spotter lanternfly and where you know global trade is um that's just an invasive it's an invasive fly that um from uh overseas that uh is making its way across New York and is going to threaten crops or the wine mm. industry. And it's like, mm. yeah, we, we didn't, we didn't introduce it the way like they introduced the King Toad, but we did, we introduced it by not controlling it and by participating in global trade. And um, we, you know, um, it's like we're ascribing negativity to it because of course it's negative when looking at it. Yeah. It's our interests. We want our crops. We want to have our native, um, native, uh, um wildlife and flora and fauna but we're really to play too yeah we're to play you know and and it's and once the genie is out of the bottle right how, how the hell do we fix it you know like wow it's hard you know absolutely yeah and beyond, there could be me no you could be there could be arguments in terms of say even invasive species oh that screws up the ecosystem and i think that's often true but what happens when say this is the local wildlife now maybe this is just nature's next process and we trust nature's process i see nature as a process less as these particular species but at the same time ecosystems are sensitive but you know we can ascribe okay the uh whatever that plant is that's the sacred good plant this one is the profane plant 
Yeah, I, think, I see. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's easy. It's easy to see that. Um, and you know, I'm about to counter that argument, but at the same time, I also, I also see the logic in that. Yeah, like why? What? What? You know, um, everything is natural. Everything is intended. So yeah, why? Why can't the East Coast now be all Burmese pythons and lionfish <laughs> and uh, spotted lanternflies, which you know, if left unchecked, this can, this is really happening. But yeah, yeah. on on the other hand, it's like, you know, we're, it's our fault. We had our thumb on the scales. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, even though nature knows what it's doing, right. we fucked with its timetable. And maybe by the time the spotted lanternfly or the red ant or the Burmese python or the lionfish got to our waters, there would be a balance. And it's, it's humans that are out of balance with nature's perfection. Even though nature is strong and nature, I think, will overcome in the end, at least I hope it is. But, you know, right now it's 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 our fault. We're, we're the ones that are all there with our thumb on the scale. And um, and any and any <laughs> any attempt by me to put to put nuance into it, because it is a world of nuance, is still um, is still just a storytelling. You know, it's it, it's it's our fault. We fucked it up. <laughs> I, and I agree. And oftentimes our efforts to correct those things sometimes can make the process even worse. And yeah, who knows what to do? But yeah, I think what keeps life going if there's only three invasive species and that takes out the whole web of life, that ain't good. So yeah, I, I tend to not trust anything humans try to do. Oh, but humans are natural. Well, we're a different kind of natural. Maybe we are, but we're, uh, we're not doing what beavers do. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> That's just sure. a fact. But on that note, tell us what you might be working on now and remind folks where we can find your awesome work. Um, yeah, since we're we're probably looking at YouTube, my YouTube channel is Daniel Brom. My most recent story does have the natural world in it as well. I may have loved, uh, I may have loved the title as I often do. Uh, the short story is called a Loch Ness Monster under the light of the Southern Cross. And yeah, there's a lot of the natural world happening in it. And that's out now. It just came out in an anthology called um, A Darkness Visible from Ontology Press. And you can find The Serpent Shadow and my short story, The Night Marchers, over at Cemetery Dance uh, Publication, CemeteryDance.com, under my name. Awesome. Well, so glad to have you back. So glad you keep putting out such great fiction and hope to talk to you again soon in the future. Great talking to you, Josh. Thank you so much. Great talking to you. Definitely. Thanks for taking a trip with me through Josh's Worst Nightmare, where I, Josh Schlossberg, survey the dark landscape of biological horror fiction. If you don't want to miss any of the great and sometimes disturbing episodes I've got planned for you, be sure to subscribe to Josh's Worst Nightmare on a variety of podcast platforms. You can also sign up for Josh's Worst Nightmare e-newsletter, where I share a whole squirming mess of bio-horror along with my latest dark scribblings at joshsworstnightmare.com. Speaking of which, if you haven't already picked up a copy of Charwood, my eco-folk horror novel from Agata Triad, or Moline, my cosmic horror novella from D&T Publishing, you can do so at your local bookstore or order from them through bookshop.org or indiebound.org or go to Amazon, barnesandnoble.com or godless.com. Darkest regards, Josh Schlossberg.